Good morning. Thanks for coming back. For those of you who might get confused because you're here in the evening and the morning, this is the time when the messages that feel like introductions to messages really are introductions. So don't leave after the first 20 minutes. I don't want you to get spoiled. Plus, I don't want my reputation to be diminished out there in the broader world for preaching forever and ever and ever and ever. Today we're going to be talking particularly about parenting. Did I just say parenting? I really hate it when we turn nouns into verbs. You know, I authored a book, but we don't say I readered a book, do we? Parents teach, discipline, nurture, but I guess we put that all into parenting. And uh, kind of two parts, although they are distinct messages, as we think about our responsibility as parents and then our task in the nurturing and discipling of the new humanity. So parenting the new humanity and then nurturing and discipling the new humanity in the second hour, which is only 45 minutes long. I hasten to remind myself, got in a little trouble yesterday because I fudged it a couple of minutes. So I'm still waiting for the caffeine to take effect. I hope they're not slipping decaf to us down there in the, because uh, I do feel fuzzy-brained, and maybe it's just the, uh, the fatigue setting in and the altitude. But anyway, we're weak. Let's pray to him who is strong. Lord, both in the preaching and in the hearing of your word, we need your spirit, and we're so thankful that we have your spirit. <clears throat> and as we come to you this morning, um, with what you have already taught us, reminded us of, uh, born home to our hearts again this week, we uh, ask for continued grace. Um, we are humbled by the task that you set before us as our king to make disciples of the nations, starting by making ourselves disciples and then discipling our children in the home. And as we think about that uh, for a while this morning, we pray uh, that you would make us more and more effective, particularly that we would be motivated to the task and then that we would have that sticking power, that faithfulness and consistency um, that is required for the task of, of bringing our children from infancy when you bring them to us or perhaps children that are brought into our families when they're a little bit older, all the way through to that time when we can send them on their way to serve you in their own right and perhaps build families of their own and disciple children of their own. Lord, even as we are here in this camp, we are reminded again of that covenant continuity, that faithfulness of our God to one generation after another after another. And we remember that that line traces all the way back to 
Abraham and even before that to a redeemed and renewed Adam and Eve as you showed grace to them after the fall. So bless us in the hearing of your word. Uh, I ask for myself to be a hearer as well as a proclaimer this morning and that all of us would take to heart those good things that you have for us. And where you stretch us and we feel the pain, may we also be reminded that with your requirements comes the promise that you will surely do what you have called us to do uh, through the grace of your Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read you a, a rather extended quotation, but I think a telling one, uh, from David Blankenhorn. This quotation is actually over 10 years old now. He wrote in 2004 on Father's Day. Um, by the way, ladies, remember, as we get reminded when Mother's Day is coming, Father's Day is coming up on Sunday. Lose the flowers. Candy's good. And some of those other unmentionables that come in long cylinders, those are, no, forget it. On this Father's Day, 2004, what is the state of fatherhood in our society? First, let me state the challenge before us. A generation ago, an American child could reasonably expect to grow up with his or her father. Today, an American child can reasonably expect not to. Fatherlessness has now approached a rough parity with fatherhood as a defining feature of American childhood. Tonight, more than one-third of American children will go to sleep in homes in which their fathers do not live. Before they reach the age of 18, more than half of our nation's children are likely to spend at least a significant portion of their childhood living apart from their fathers. Never before in this country have so many children been voluntarily abandoned by their fathers. Never before have so many children grown up without knowing what it means to have a father. Fatherlessness is the most harmful demographic trend in this generation. It is the leading cause of declining child well-being in our society. It is also the engine driving our most urgent social problems, from crime to adolescent pregnancy to child sexual abuse to domestic violence against women. Where is this trend heading? He could only guess in 2004 what things might look like in 2015. Where is this trend heading? As people born after 1970 come increasingly to dominate our working age adult population, the United States will be divided into two groups, separate and unequal. The two groups will work in the same economy, speak a common language, and remember the same national history but they will live fundamentally divergent lives. One group will receive basic benefits, psychological, social, economic, educational, and moral, that are denied to the other group. The primary fault line 
dividing the two groups will not be race, religion, class, education, or gender. It will be patrimony. One group will consist of those adults who grew up with the daily presence and provision of fathers. The other group will consist of those who did not. Amazingly, in our society today, these two groups are roughly the same size. The core question is simple. Does every child need a father? Currently, our society's answer is no, or at least not necessarily. Few idea shifts in this century are as consequential as this one. At stake is nothing less than what it means to be a man, who our children will be, and what kind of society we will become. Thus far, David Blankenhorn's comment. And I think that trend, as we well recognize, has gone in the same direction. Nothing significant has happened to uh, move it in a different direction. And now with the uh, rise of even more aberrant, quote-unquote, family arrangements, uh, it can only get worse. What difference does it make to you as a father? What difference does it make to your children? And as you know, most of what the Bible says about parenting comes under the heading of the responsibility of fathers. But again and again, there are glimpses that show that mothers as well as fathers have a significant role to play in the nurture and the direction of the rising generation. But fathers have the responsibility, and their abdication of that responsibility wreaks havoc upon not only their immediate families, but more broadly the ripple effect the devastating ripple effect is almost like a tsunami in its destructive power as it sweeps through the breadth of our society and our culture. I once knew a conscientious Christian father who spent very little time with his children because he was so consumed with his professional labors. He was in business for himself. He was busy Uh, doing jobs and then bidding more jobs and trying to make sure that there was adequate work coming in. Like so many of those sorts of jobs, it was a feast or famine kind of a thing. And so there was always that need to be pushing and pushing and pushing. He delegated the responsibility for the rearing of his children almost totally to his wife, a capable and devoted and godly woman. He had a work ethic like few men that I have ever met in my life. And he spent long, long, long hours on the job. When I asked him one day why he spent so many hours at work, he answered almost automatically, I need to provide for my family. I need to provide for my family. And I asked him, what can you provide for them? that will adequately replace your presence, your involvement, your leadership and direction for that family. Of course, like many men, provide for your family means provide materially, provide economically. And, and he thought for a minute and he said, you know, I, there's no answer 
to that question. And that was the beginning of a radical change of direction in the life of that father. Perhaps the most difficult challenge of a Christian man, and increasingly as we have women involved in the workforce, this affects moms um, uh, that have to work outside of the home as well. Um, uh, the, The challenge is to balance then for a man, especially that dual calling, the calling that he has as a husband and father as a one hand, and then as a servant of Christ in the broader world, following his vocation under the command of God to subdue the earth, to replenish it, and to rule over it in the name of our risen King. Being able to do that, and of course, it's something that has to be learned and adjusted day by day by day, um, especially for working men. You know, I think uh, some of us pastors who, uh, (laughs) I'm tempted to say, have never done an honest day's work in our life, but I won't say that. (laughs) But haven't been working men, we've spent our whole life in school or in the academic world, don't have a lot of sympathy sometimes. At least we can't connect on a visceral level with those working men who really do have to try to responsibly uh, manage uh, a career that requires all of the time that they can possibly give it and more, and then their ministry in the family that also requires all of the time that they could give it and more. And then to be able to trust God to allow two life-dominating vocations to be done simultaneously and done effectively. You talk about something that will stretch your faith. That is it. This separates the men from the boys in a way that mere age could never do. And tragically, it's an area where many men are failing. And the consequences are not always immediately evident, especially if you have a faithful, responsible, godly woman to whom you can delegate a great deal of the responsibility for raising the children. But sooner or later, the cracks will appear between the father and the family. I went to the doctor just last Friday and... uh, Uh, just as he was checking my meds and stuff, it was just a routine thing, and I said, how are you and your family doing? And he just sort of said, they're fine. And then he caught himself, and he said, you know, I I tend to think of it as them and me. Uh, But he said, we're doing fine, and he said they were about to go off on a family vacation that was very nice. But again, just thinking about dad and then the rest of the family. And in some families, that distance becomes so acute, it becomes virtually irreparable in the long run. As I said, most of what the Bible has to say about parenting roles is taken up under the heading of fathers. And again, here, as just in, in terms of our relationships as men and women in marriage and husbands and wives in their unique roles, much of what we need to learn is common to the Christian life. And so what we need to do in any discipleship ministry, the kind of skills, the kind of goals, the kind of uh, techniques and so forth that we need to develop, uh, 
are then also relevant to the rising, the, the nurture and discipline of our children. So again, when you disciple children, you're not moving into a completely new realm where a whole different set of rules and skills applies. So the more you have learned throughout your life to be discipled and to disciple others within the body of Christ, at least if you've spent any significant time in the Christian community, will help equip you then for the responsibility of parenting. So let's uh, ask again, as we have been doing, what is the word of our Lord? We're thinking of this under the Lordship of Christ, under the rubric of the, the Great Commission, to disciple by teaching to observe what our King has told us about the various aspects of family life. So what is the word of the King concerning our role as parents? And I've tried to put this in a, in a nutshell, in a sentence, which Alan will now post for us, because I thought for you note-takers, you might want to write this down, because I'm going to unpack it in a few minutes, and rather than me repeating it over and over and over again. In a nutshell, King Jesus requires parents to pass on to their children a sincere, functioning understanding of the necessity and the blessings of faith in the true and living God, understood within the context of the gospel, we come to know the true and living God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then faithfulness to His covenant. You're familiar, perhaps, and you can just leave up that, that up there for a while, Alan, and we'll come back to it. Thank you. Uh, familiar with Genesis 18.17, as God has come down on His way to see what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, to visit judgment upon the wickedness of that city, He stops off along the way to speak with Abraham. And in view of the dramatic judgment that's about to come, and the questions that this will undoubtedly raise in Abraham's heart and mind, he wants to explain himself or, or to get Abraham on board with what is about to happen. And so the Lord says in verse 17 of Genesis 18, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. And then 19, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Now that 19th verse is as good a statement in all of Scripture concerning the responsibility of parents toward their children and the blessings that accrue to the faithful discharge of that responsibility. And I've cast it in slightly different terms, but that's really what we're trying to get at. I have chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. That's covenantal language, to remain faithful to the covenant that God was making with him by grace. 
by doing what is right and just. There's the ethical dimension of it. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And what has he promised him? Blessing. The blessings of covenant life. Now notice there's nothing in here about providing materially for your family. And yet many men think that that is their primary responsibility toward their family. And I'm not discounting that we have a responsibility to provide materially for our family. But it's sad that in so many instances that eclipses every other concern and often justifies the neglect of many other concerns. And it's not even there in the text, in the job description. And again, women, mothers, have a place to a role to fulfill in this responsibility as well. The Lord God had been a father to Israel and called his son out of Egypt. And then as we've already seen in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he led his son Israel through the wilderness in order to teach him a sense of true priority. He humbled him and made him hungry in order to teach him that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, that gives us a sense of the relative importance of providing earthly bread for our families versus providing the bread of life, the word of God, for our families. And to neglect the one in the name of the other is a mistaken set of values. And it can have deadly consequences. Well, what do we mean, or what do I mean, by a sincere functioning understanding of the necessity and blessings of faith in the true and living God and faithfulness to his covenant? Let me break it down for a few minutes this morning. Sincere, a sincere faith in the true and living God. Here again, we're focusing on the heart dimension of our faith. It's relatively easy to get your children to say and do the right things. As a matter of rote, we can teach them to memorize things or to put certain things into practice, whether they understand them or not. And initially, they won't really understand why they're doing what they're doing. As a matter of fact, sometimes they're going to say, Daddy, why do we do this or that? Why do we say these prayers? Why do we read this book? Why do we sing these songs? Why do we go every Sunday to that gathering place? But the Christian faith must eventually become for our children, as for us, a matter of sincere devotion, a heart religion. And uh, certainly the church in the last several decades has been blessed by Ted Tripp's books, Shepherding a Child's Heart, which has as its emphasis this heartward orientation of our discipling of our children. Now, Faithful Christians have already always understood that, uh, but, but for our contemporary world, uh, Ted has done us a great service in helping parents implement that kind of heart shepherding. Um, Paul tells Timothy that the goal of our command, his commands is love, which comes from a pure heart 
and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So sincerity in the sense of a heart commitment to the true and living God. That sincere faith, Paul said, lived in Timothy because it had lived in his mother and his grandmother as well. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. So it must be a sincere faith. It must be a functional faith. Now here I'm thinking about the practicalities, but not just that there have to be practical applications of our sincere faith, but when I use the word functional, I'm thinking about the kind of gut-level familiarity with the truths of God's Word where they become the working principles, the rules of thumb, the spectacles that we wear when we look at all of life and when we try and work in the world in light of that faith. It really is what the Bible calls wisdom. The juncture between the principles of God's Word and a growing body of experience that yields a kind of instinct for godliness. Habits of heart and mind that enable us, as I was saying uh, in the first message, a kind of orientation. We know where we are and we can get our bearings and then live in terms of all of the different aspects of human life in a self-conscious submission to the will and word of God. It involves instruction in a kind of positive way and corrective discipline. And we're going to talk more about that, Lord willing, in the second hour. Let me just listen again to the opening verses of the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Now, you know, when we use that word insight, what what do we mean? We, We usually think about being able to see beyond surface appearances, to get to the heart of the matter, to see connections in order to have a greater understanding of a situation. Well, God's wisdom gives that kind of insight to receive instruction in wise dealing. Again, we're talking about the skills of interacting with other people, dealing with other people to make a deal in the business world perhaps, or simply to, with mutual engagement and agreement, make social life work. Again, wise dealing. To receive instruction in righteousness, and justice, and equity, those characteristics that are especially necessary for one who will be a leader in either the civil community or perhaps in government. That's a great concern of the book of Proverbs, to train men who will one day become courtiers, who will one day be civil leaders. To give prudence to the simple, Of course, in Proverbs, we all start out simple. We're all naive. What I tell the young people, we're class B fools. Uh, We're easily fooled. We don't have a very uh, adequate sense of value. And so we, from our simplicity, are moved toward prudence. Again, where we can plan, where we can defer gratification for the sake of a greater goal. And none of those things are things that just happen overnight. 
They come as we take the principles of God's Word and apply them to our experience again and again and again. Again, I, like to, I, I think about a... Now, again, we don't have mechanics like this anymore because everything's computerized. You plug it into the machine and it tells you what's going on, kind of like the doctors these days. But there used to be mechanics that you could say, well, it makes this kind of, you know, the car talk kind of guy. It goes like, nang, 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 or it goes, ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. And they think, well, it could be this, and it could be out of a vast wealth of experience, they have a sense of what might well be wrong. And yeah, they're not right all the time. They're only right about 90% of the time. They have an instinct. They have an ear. They have a, a sense. Well, in the moral and spiritual realm, as well as in the practical realm, that's what wisdom is. And that's what I'm thinking about when I talk about a functional faith in the true and living God. Uh, verse 5 says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, direction. And the idea, again, is direction in a pretty murky, disorienting kind of world where you can easily get off track. The ability, the, the wisdom of God enables us to understand a proverb and a wise saying and the words of the wise and their riddles. And then, of course, the capstone in verse 7, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Again, we could think about what Paul says concerning Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16. The idea of reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, as well as teaching. The teaching is foundational, but it's got to be more than simply getting the principles down. So, that's what I mean by functional. Our responsibility is to train our children in this kind of wisdom. So that as they mature and as they grow, they're going to begin to develop that same kind of gut instinct for the truth. So, sincere, functional. Now, thinking about the necessity of faith and the blessings of faith. You know, you often talk to unbelieving parents and they take it as a matter of pride that they're going to leave religious decisions up to their children. They're going to let their fi them find their own way religiously. Well, we are unabashedly devoted to indoctrinating our children in setting a direction for them and trying to keep them disciplined in that direction long enough and far enough so that when you finally take the forms away, the shape will be there for a lifetime of service to God. Knowing God, trusting God, believing in the true and living God is not just a, a beneficial add-on to family life. We believe that it's foundational. Again, it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. On a philosophical or an intellectual level, we believe that the fear of the Lord is foundational for all knowledge. It's epistemologically primary. All right, you wanted a 75-cent word before you left to go back home again, so there it is. All our thinking, if it's going to be right thinking, must be based upon the fear, the faith of God. Uh, fear, uh, fear of God, faith in God. And so we are told in Deuteronomy chapter 6, for example, that 
as we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, we are then, verse 7, to teach these things diligently to our children. Talking about them when we sit in our house, and when we walk by the way, and when we lie down, and when we rise up. You shall bind them as the sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Because, verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, to great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Without faith, nothing else matters. Without instructing our children and praying for them that they might walk in the faith of the true and living God through His Son, Jesus Christ, then there's nothing that compensates for that. You know, they may or may not get a college education. They may or may not be successful in athletic pursuits. They may or may not marry and have children. But they must, God granted, believe in God through Jesus Christ, or they will be lost for all eternity. It is necessary that they believe, and that knowledge of the true and living God is the source of every other blessing, supremely the blessing of eternal life itself. By way of contrast, forgetting, as we just saw, brings about disaster and death. Here again, you can think about um, the book of Proverbs where wisdom promises a whole array of blessing from the very temporal, immediate, to ultimately that lifetime of blessing, which is immortality. Um, Chapter 3 of Proverbs, blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. You know, I, I know there are those who like to drive a wedge between the spiritual blessings of faith and the material promises that are made, particularly in the Old Testament, I just find them so mishmashed and swung back and forth and intermingled that I'm not sure that we can really say, well, these are the eternal blessings and these are the temporal blessings and this is one set of principles and here's another set of principles. They, the outward blessings are sacramental. They're, they're signs and seals, if you will, of that inward eternal blessing of life and fellowship with God. But that's a different set of discussions. Uh, In chapter 4, the author uh, 
says in verse 4, Lay hold of my words with all your heart and keep my commandments and you will live. Um, Wisdom will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Verse 6, Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. And if it costs all you have, get understanding. Esteem her and she shall exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. It's interesting. I mean, some of the, uh, the, the negative or the, the skeptical Old Testament scholars say, you know, wisdom is commended as a means to this earthly prosperity, and yet wisdom itself says, if you have a choice between the two, hold on to me and let the others go. And again, that's the kind of paradox Wisdom is a means to an end, but wisdom is supreme over any other end. Even the eternal life is still under the heading or under the rubric of the blessing of wisdom in the fear of the Lord. And then there are so many of those Proverbs that speak about wealth and honor and life, and life and a fountain of life. But maybe just to uh, wrap this up with Proverbs 12, 28, in the way of righteousness there is life, and along that path is immortality. At least that's the way the NIV renders it, and there are, I think, good reasons to render the Hebrew that way. Immortality. The blessing of life, yes, but a life of a different quality. The life of the age to come. So, necessary and blessed. And then, of course, faith in the true and living God and faithfulness to His covenant. Thinking about the true and living God who has revealed Himself in the world around us, in our own nature as human beings made in God's image and likeness, but then in the words of Scripture, the Old and New Testaments, and supremely in the person of God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the God that we want to teach our children to believe in. And again, in our circles, we use the term God without much definition, without much explanation. You know, as I've taught over the years, I I learned some things from Francis Schaeffer back in my formative years, and he used to just, as a catchphrase, he didn't say God, he said the infinite personal God, and I've added the infinite personal triune God of Scripture You know, if we were Germans, we would make that all one name, one big, long word. But when we say God, because again, people mean all kinds of things by that term. Um, When people say they don't believe in God, our first question should be, well, what God do you not believe in? Because I don't know whether I believe in that God either. We're only interested in one God. Those of you who remember Dr. Bonson's debate with... uh, with uh, Dr. Stein, the atheist, I mean, the first thing Dr. Bonson said was, I'll be happy to join this atheist in arguing against the existence of any other God that you can imagine except the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you could see Dr. Stein just kind of go, oh, nuts. (laughs) Because it's that other God that I wanted to talk about. And he's not even up for discussion anymore. The true and living God, the infinite, personal, triune God of Scripture revealed supremely in Jesus Christ. That's the God we want our children to know 
to trust, to love, and to serve. And if they do, blessings will flow to them. In doing this, we need to think about telling the story, the biblical story, to our children over and over and over again. You know, we have in our tradition emphasized catechism, and catechism is a wonderful tool, but it's basically a primer in systematic theology. Now, we always assume that along with our catechetical training is going to go Bible reading and becoming familiar, but theoretically it would be possible to teach catechism without ever telling the story of creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. And yet it's that story, it's that biblical narrative that makes sense of all of the theological principles that are summarized in our catechism. And so we need to tell our children the story of Jesus over and over and over again. Without that narrative, without that storyline, without that redemptive history as a context, then the, the doctrines are rootless and they will soon wither. Um, I'm not sure if it's ever even if it's in print anymore because I haven't had occasion to use it in my home lately. Um, but back in my day, uh, uh, "Promise and Deliverance" by De Graff was was a favorite uh, within families of of bringing biblical theology or redemptive historical theology to our children as it told the story of Scripture. And, and you need to tell it as it is, in truth, your family history. These are your relatives, this Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses was a distant relative there. This is the family of faith and its history. We need also to explain the symbols and the ceremonies of our faith, leading our children at a very early age, not only to manipulate hymnals and such, but to begin to understand. And again, there's lots of practical suggestions about how to do this. How do we, as we get our children out of the nursery and into the pew and they can sit upright without tipping over, and, and um, then, then we begin to show them our equipment and, and help them find them, themselves on the page. And, and of course, we've got our youngest uh, grandson, Liam, is just now beginning to read. And I got to sit up here with him. And, and uh, you know, he's been mute. He's been looking at words in the hymnal and hearing tunes and doing nothing. And now he can read, he can sing. And just having him stand there in my ear while I hold the hymn book and hear you talk. Some of you mentioned seeing the kids read the scripture up here last night. I mean, that was glorious. But to be able to read so you can read God's word and you can read the words of the hymnal and begin to sing yourself. What a great, great blessing. And yet, sadly, over the years, I've seen so many parents that if their kids are quiet in church, that's, they've achieved their goal. Um, way past where I think they ought to have their children now participating. Um, and there's different ways to do that. But, you know, they're not just, they're going to learn the ropes of what we do, but in order to begin to participate, we need to be teaching them in the pews. And then to lead them into the lifestyle, the praxis, the ethic of God's people. 
And this sort of segues in this idea of faithfulness to God's covenant, trusting and obeying, learning the privileges and the responsibilities of life in covenant with this God, and helping them to grow in their consistent practice. Now again, we'll talk a little bit more about nurture and discipline in the next hour, but these are the kinds of things that parents then are responsible to do. And let me make a, uh, say just a word here to moms uh, again, because I think these verses in Proverbs connected with uh, what Paul says in 2 Timothy are, are uh, uh, directed particularly by way of encouragement to mothers. In Proverbs 4, verse 3, the wise man says, When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender, and the only child of my mother... He taught me and said, lay hold of my words with all your heart, keep my commands, and you will live. Bruce Waltke, whom some of you know as an Old Testament uh, scholar, uh, wrote a big two-volume commentary on the book of Proverbs. And he points out that in the literature of the ancient Near East, the wisdom literature, women are not present. Moms don't play a role at all. And the Bible's wisdom literature is unique in drawing attention to the mother's role as well as the father's role. Well, that's really highlighted in the experience of Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.5, as you know, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and then in your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Presumably a mixed family where the faith was delivered to Timothy from his Jewish mother and grandmother, dad not interested in the Christian nurture of his son. And it paid off. Chapter 3, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So praise God for the faithful ministry of moms who day by day, hour after hour, continue to disciple their children in the Word of God with their husbands, with their fathers. Again, obviously there are sometimes when for various reasons mom or dad is not in the picture, but ideally husbands and wives together discipling their children. Uh, I mentioned this, I think, uh, last night or yesterday, but you know, when you think about your preparation, we talked about husbands and wives, but what about the preparation that we received to be this kind of a parent? Uh, many jobs require so much education and training. I mentioned a friend of mine who had to do 2,000 hours of on-the-job training as an appraiser before he got his certification, and John Nelson, who's got to cut 1,500 hours of hair before they'll let him take the test to see if he can be a barber. I don't know about you, but I, I didn't really get any hours of training to be a father. Um, I don't think I actually thought that just conceiving a child would somehow magically equip me for the job, but it doesn't. Conceiving a child, bearing a child, even adopting a child doesn't equip us for this task. What kind of 
training did you get from your parents at home that have equipped you to be the kind of parent that God wants you to be, that God needs you to be for your children? See, again, we, we don't get it. I mean, some of us learn some really, somebody was telling me the other day, they learned some really, really bad things from their parents. And now they're fighting because it continues to affect the way they live in the home. And some of us know that struggle. So where are we going to turn? How are we going to be equipped? And as we've seen before, that humbling, that hungering drives us then to God, the Holy Spirit, for our resources. Who is sufficient for this task? As parents, we must depend absolutely on the life and strength supplied by the Holy Spirit. As parents, God has given you authority over your children, to be sure. You can start by commanding them, but eventually you have to learn how to persuade them and win them by God's grace to walk in the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And I guess it's obvious, but it should be stated, you can't pass on to your children what you don't know and experience yourself. You must be discipled, even as an adult, in order to then become a discipler of your children. You may be able to pass on some catechism answers, you, but, but it will not resonate in the hearts of your children until it comes from your heart to theirs and is consistently evident in your life. You know, George Herbert, the English poet, wrote a poem called Windows. It's really about pastors, but uh, I think it applies to parents as well. He uses the metaphor of a, of a church window, the, the colored glass, and he talks about color and light being blended And so he says, in the pastor, the truth of the gospel and the life of the pastor must be blended together. And so as the light shines through the man, it affects his flock. Well, isn't that what uh, fathers and and mothers ought to be? People in whom the, the truth of the gospel and their own life are so blended that our children see the truth embodied in us. We're not just teaching lessons but we're saying, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ Jesus. When children walk away from the faith, sadly, in older years, um, and sometimes this is just an excuse, but they do often speak about the hypocrisy they saw in their parents. And you know... It is kind of humbling, and maybe you've had this conversation with some of your grown-up children, and you find out that they noticed all kind of things about you that you had so effectively hidden. You thought they didn't notice, or they didn't care, because you kind of put it aside, and lo and behold, they knew about it all along. So they can detect our parental hypocrisy, and so it really needs to be a sincere faith conveyed then insincerity to be received as a heart faith by our children. 
So we're driven back to the Holy Spirit again. He as the agent of the risen King, Jesus, in and among the people of God. The Spirit makes us new people who then can be new parents, new moms and dads, able to fulfill haltingly, fumblingly, but growingly fulfill that calling that we are given to be disciplers of our children. And there are techniques that you can learn from the books, but the techniques are not as necessary, finally, as that work of the Spirit in us and through us. Let me just, and we're almost out of time here, uh, mention one thing in terms of our reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Again, this is true across the board, but we could think about ourselves as praying parents. If you had your children baptized in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, you promised to pray with and for your children. Why is that so very, very important? Calvin calls prayer the chief exercise of faith. The thing we do above anything else if we are people of faith, if our reliance is upon God the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do we abide in Christ? And we talked about it with the children last night. We talk to God. We commune with God in prayer. And His life supplies our life. Again, we pray when our children are sick. We pray when they need to go to school. We pray for things that God would do for them. And that's all well and good. But we need in prayer to, de- de- to express and experience our utter dependency upon God for any good thing that will come in the lives of our children. There must be that consistent trust in the Spirit's working expressed in our prayer reliance upon God. If we know these things are true, then we ought to pray. And when I think back on my work as a father, I'm sure my biggest failure to my children was my weak and feeble and faltering prayer life with them and for them. It was often inconsistent, just like you. I'd rare to start in family devotions, and I didn't think I was getting the kind of response I wanted, so it would sputter and falter and stop for a while, and, and then I'd rev it up. It was like that tractor they were pulling around here. Yesterday. Kapow! 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 <laughs> Oftentimes, my prayers were as rote as theirs were, superficial, asking about things that were passing matters. Sometimes, I suspect, insincere. It really came home to me when our son Benjamin, who went into the Marine Corps, was deployed in 2004 and got dropped right into the middle of Fallujah. And I was so afraid. And I prayed and prayed and prayed that God would protect his body. And I thought, oh, have you ever prayed that fervently for his soul? Sometimes but certainly not with the consistency 
and I suspect I'm not alone. If we believe that it all depends upon God, then we must pray. Some of you tragically have had children walk away from the faith, and you're praying for them now with a fervency and a desperation that perhaps wasn't there before. Well, praise God, whatever it takes for Him to get us to that place. But I say this so that you who are not in that place yet might realize you need to get there. To be parents who pray because the help for your children can come from only one quarter, and that is from Christ Himself. And I might just say that we pray with them as well as for them Because they need, just as they follow Jesus' example of prayer, they need to see dad praying. They need to hear dad wrestling. They need to understand mom's heart poured out before God. And so when we pray with them, they learn some things about us. Because isn't it true, you really, you learn some things about someone on their knees before the throne of mercy that you might not learn in any other kind of conversation. And our children need to see that. It's been said many times, prayer is caught more than it is taught. We saw last night that the, 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 the disciples were moved to ask Jesus to teach them to pray because they had been watching him and listening to him pray. And they wanted somehow to do what he did. Well... I do need to let you go. Um, Some of this uh, learning from and being encouraged and helped by others who have nurtured the new humanity. Again, maybe you get the idea now. We learn from others who have been through this before us, just like fathers learn, or husbands learn from other husbands and wives from other wives. We can learn from those who have raised children in the faith, discipled them and trained them. Um, I would mention here, you know, we do, people who are generally unselfish and open-handed with a lot of their things sometimes get really, really possessive about their children. And they act like nobody else, even in the body of Christ, can teach their children. This is one of those places, I think, where what I said the other day about people who pit the nuclear family against the family of faith. You know, I mean, there are parents who won't send their children to Sunday school. Because nobody else in the body of Christ can teach their children about Jesus. Or nobody can do it as well as the parent. So that kind of possessiveness, and of course, you know, there's always somebody who's going to come along and say, why don't you straighten that kid out? And we're offended. And so we back away. But let's not lose the richness, the diversity of gifts within the body of Christ to reinforce our efforts. I was talking to, well, I guess it was Mike the other day, you know, it's, it's, I know there was a time in my life, and I wasn't raised by a Christian father, But there were men in my life who could tell me things that my dad had already told me, and I would take it from them like a coach at school and not from my dad. And so Mike and I were talking about, you know, it's great if if he can tell my son something that my son won't take from me, and I can tell his son something that he's not taking it from him. We get the message through. I mean, who cares 
who tells him, am I going to be so proud, so possessive, that if my son doesn't learn godliness from me, it's useless? Crazy, ridiculous. So let's benefit from the group parenting that is available within the body of Christ, rather than thinking that these are my children and no one can disciple them but me. Well, I'm going to stop there for now. Let's just pray and we'll kind of pick up on this thread and move on in the next session. Lord, thank you for the calling. Um, It seems like it changes every couple of years in terms of the dynamics, the age of our children, our family circumstances, sometimes other factors that, that enter in, and so we always have to have a new plan, and then we have to be ready for another plan. And when our children are very young, it's just flat exhausting, Lord, as I, as I look at the young moms and dads. And what a joy to see moms and dads together here at camp and sharing the responsibility of the care of their little ones. Uh, but it's just, it's not a job for the faint-hearted, Lord. And I thank you for their trust in you and your gracious supply to them. And we do ask, God, that we would be more affected by our professed belief that apart from you we can do nothing. It's easy enough to say that, O Lord, to quote the Scripture, but make us people that are more intently dependent in every way, but particularly as that comes to expression in our sustained, sincere urgent, even desperate prayer that you might fill our children's hearts with your spirit in his transforming power and work faith in them that will persevere unto all eternity. And may you who decided to do this way, it this way, to be the God of your people and their children and their grandchildren from one generation to another, O Lord, It's your program. Will you please fulfill it in us to the glory and praise of your great name? Amen.